next Sunday. And, you know, keep your tree up and all that stuff. <clears throat> but tonight we are in Genesis. Genesis. Oh, boy, hard to get Genesis out of my mind. James chapter 4. James chapter 4 and verse 13. We'll read down through the end of the chapter. James chapter 4. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Heavenly Father, we ask for your power as we open your word tonight. I ask that you give me great liberty as I speak to proclaim the excellencies of your word, to lift up Christ before these people. We pray that he would increase and that I would decrease, as John the Baptist said. Lord, please arrest our attention with these thoughts here in James. We pray that as we leave this place, we would be determined to be more faithful to you, more committed in the coming year. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you have ever made a New Year's resolution? How many of you have ever kept a New Year's resolution? Okay, that's a different story, right? Some years ago, I read about a gentleman who had some difficulty keeping his New Year's resolutions. And he made a series of New Year's resolutions. These are a bit dated, but they started in 1999 and went up to 2005. And so let me share some of the highlights. Resolution number one, 1999, he said, I will read at least 20 good books a year. 2000, I will read at least 10 books a year. 2001, I will read five books a year. 2002, I will finish the Pelican Brief. 2003, I will read some articles in the newspaper this year. You can see how it's kind of dated 2004, I will read at least one article this year. 2005, I will try and finish the comics section this year. <laughs> Resolution number two, 1999, I will get my weight down below 180. 2000, I will watch my calories until I get below 190. 2001, I will follow my new diet religiously until I get below 200. 2002, I will try to develop a realistic attitude about my weight. 2003, I will work out five days a week. 2004, I will work out three days a week. 2005, I will try to drive past a gym at least once a week. <laughs> this is resolution number four. 2002, I will try to be a better husband to Marge. 2003, I will not leave Marge. 2004, I will try for a reconciliation with Marge. 2005, I will try to be a better husband to Wanda. 
This was his eighth resolution. 2002, I will not take a drink before 5 p.m. 2003, I will not touch the bottle before noon. 2004, I will not become a problem drinker. 2005, I will not miss any AA meetings. And then, resolution 10, in 2002, I will go to church every Sunday. 2003, I will go to church as often as possible. 2004, I will set aside time each day for prayer and meditation. 2005, I will try to catch the late night sermonette on TV. Now, why is it that we have such trouble keeping New Year's resolutions? We all can identify with the struggles that this gentleman had. We might say maybe laziness, lack of willpower, distractions, forgetfulness, and all of those could be important factors. But James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, might point us to an entirely different problem. And I would suggest that the problem that James points us to is specifically related to making plans for the future. Of course, I'm sure that New Year's resolutions weren't a thing in James's day. But nonetheless, he's addressing readers who are making plans. And the one thing that he points out that is missing in all of their planning is a consideration of the providential plan of Almighty God. These individuals were making plans. They had all their ducks in order, all the things that they thought that they could control, but yet they did not give consideration to the fact that ultimately we are not in control. God is. Now, before we consider what James has to say about this kind of poor planning, we need to step back a minute and consider the bigger picture of what James is telling us in his epistle. Now, James wrote this epistle to Jewish Christians back in the early church. Of course, in the early church, we have this kind of mentality sometimes that from the very beginning that you had this big group of Jews and Gentiles. But in the earliest days of the church, we know that the church was predominantly made up of Jews. And so James is one of the earliest epistles of our New Testament, if not the earliest, according to some scholars. And he was writing specifically to Jewish Christians who were undergoing trials because of their faith. You see that in the opening chapter. Speaking of diverse temptations or diverse trials that his readers are undergoing. James specifically wrote to these readers to encourage them to remain faithful to the Lord amid trials. And to, in the midst of these trials grow in their spiritual maturity. Now, one significant hindrance to the spiritual maturity of these readers is worldliness. And, of course, that's a topic that you won't hear addressed in a lot of pulpits. But it is one that really comes to the forefront in James's epistle. If you go back to chapter 3, you see how James starts developing this theme. James 3 and verse 13 who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you, let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. 
you see this contrast that James presents between wisdom that comes from above and wisdom that comes from below, from the earth. In fact, he goes so far as to say that that type of wisdom is devilish. Notice that in verse 14, this type of worldly wisdom is characterized by bitter envying and strife in your hearts. By contrast, in verse 17, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. So there is a vast contrast between the wisdom that comes from above, from God, versus the wisdom that comes from this world, from the earth. And you have this theme of bitter envying, strife, conflicts, and it continues into chapter 4. Notice verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts, that war in your members? Why is it? that there are conflicts taking place among James' readers. Well, ultimately, James pins the problem in the lusts, in the ungodly desires that his readers have. Notice verse 2. Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Of course, you, some of you have probably committed those words to memory. But the context here is indicative of the fact that these readers were seeking certain things simply out of their own fleshly desires rather than taking their concerns to the Lord in prayer. Then notice verse 3, Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. And so there were others that actually did take their needs to the Lord but as they were doing so, they were motivated simply by selfish interests. Now look at how James describes all of this when you get to verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses. Wow, that's strong terminology. If you do your research and you go back to the Old Testament, you find that this is a common description that God had for the nation of Israel. Because of their idolatry, they were spiritual adulterers. And so that imagery comes through all throughout the Old Testament. James builds on that here, and notice what he says. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. For James, to be in love with this present world is ultimately to be in conflict with God himself. Of course, we know John's famous admonition in 1 John 2.15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, what? The love of the Father is not in him. Love for the world, not love just in the sense of you know, wanting to reach lost people with the gospel and so forth, but love in the sense of being attached to the worldly ways that this present age has to offer. That kind of love is inconsistent with love for God. And that's why James says that as his readers are flirting with the world, ultimately they are positioning themselves as enemies of God himself. 
strong words. But you see how this worldliness is connected with fleshly lusts. It's connected with conflicts, with fighting amongst themselves. It's not just don't smoke, don't chew, don't run with those who do. There's much more to worldliness than that. And that's exactly what James is targeting his readers with in this context. And because of all of this, James admonishes his readers that they need to draw near to God, they need to humble themselves, and ultimately they need to avoid speaking evil of each other. Notice what you have in verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. And so all of this is the antidote to the worldliness that has begun to creep in to the lives of James's readers. Now, it is against this backdrop that we have verses 13 through 17 in this chapter. And what James describes for us is a clear example of worldly thinking. The type of thinking that we should seek to eradicate as God's people. It is the type of thinking that is restricted to the earth, that doesn't consider the values of heaven. It omits reference to God. And so James gives us these instructions with a very clear purpose in mind, that we must keep God central in all of our planning. Now what James is going to unfold for us here are three realities of planning without God. So first of all, I'd like us to consider, number one, the presumption of planning without God. The presumption of planning without God in verses 13 and 14. We have the presumption stated in verse 13. Notice, Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. These words, go to, they simply mean listen up. And so James abruptly captures the attention of his readers. And he explains specifically this type of planning that he has in mind. Not all planning is sinful, of course. There's an appropriate place for planning. But the type of planning envisioned here is one that receives a very stern rebuke from James. Notice that there's a specific goal here. He says in this verse at the end, get gain, or we could say to earn a profit. There's a particular goal that's in mind. There's also a specific time frame in view. Notice he says today or tomorrow, and then he says continue there a year. That's always customary with goals that we set, that you have a time frame in which the goal is going to be accomplished. There's a specific location. We will go into such a city. And there's a procedure for attaining the goal. Buy and sell. Now, you might look at that and you might think, well, that sounds like pretty good planning. 
I mean, it sounds like he's got all of his ducks in order. So what's the problem? The problem is not the planning, it is the presumption. Now, if you look in this verse, you find that, especially in the original language, it comes through that these are verses that are given in the future tense. And there's a sense of certainty with all of these verbs. Notice, we will go into such a city. We will continue there a year. We will buy and sell. We will get gain. There's certainty in all of this. Not a hint of doubt. This is exactly what's going to transpire according to those that are giving these plans. No possibility of unforeseen circumstances or emergencies. What James tells us here really echoes the words of our Lord. If you go back to Luke chapter 12, you find something very similar in the teaching of Christ. Incidentally, if you read through James, you find that there are a number of parallels between what James tells us and the specific teachings of our Lord in the Gospels, especially the Sermon on the Mount. But there's also, I think, hints of this passage as well. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 16, And he spake a parable unto them, of course this is Jesus speaking, He says, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat Drink and be merry. You see the parallel, don't you? As you look in this passage, there's an incredible degree of certainty. He's got this plan that he's got all these goods laid up for many years, and so he's going to tear down his barns. He's going to build any even greater ones. He's going to have plenty of room to store all of his goods, and he's going to be able to simply eat and drink and be merry for many years. Incredible certainty. Of course, verse 20 brings us to reality. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. All this planning, all this preparation, it all comes to naught because God says tonight your soul is required of you. And, of course, Jesus tells us elsewhere, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? All that earthly wealth, all that planning, all of it ultimately becomes meaningless when it's time for one to face his creator. Are you prepared to face your creator? Are you prepared, friend, for the moment that you will leave this world when you will die? You see, all the planning, all the wealth that you can amass, it will mean nothing when you stand before God. Oh, friend, it's imperative that you come to Christ, that you trust in the Son of God before it's too late. Well, we see here in Luke 12 and we see in James that there's this presumption that takes place. 
In the parable of Luke 12, God rejects the presumption of a rich man who makes plans without God. And the similar thing takes place in James 4. Consider the presumption rejected. As we go back to James, we're in James 4, and look at verse 14 of James chapter 4. We notice how James rejects this presumption on the part of those that would make these kinds of plans. Verse 14, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, and then vanisheth away. Now, James's readers, as we find in verse 13, are planning for a year in advance. Today or tomorrow, we're going to go into this city. We will continue there for a year. But in this verse, James says, you know not what shall be on the morrow. Not only do you not know what's going to happen in a year, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. It seems that James is drawing from the Old Testament here. Proverbs 27 and verse 1. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. And I would also suggest he may also have in mind the words of his half-brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Now we can plan, and we ought to. Of course, we plan in this church. But none of us can be sure of what tomorrow holds. I think that the futility of presumption can be seen really clearly when you look at the events of 9-11. It's very interesting. This uh, journalist by the name of Garrett Graff wrote a book surveying the stories of those who survived and those who did not survive the attacks on the Twin Towers. And as far as I'm aware, Graff uh, does not make any claims to be born again or anything like that. And when you look at his writing, he refers to luck, to fate, to chance. But listen to this account that he gives, very fascinating, about two co-workers in the Twin Towers on 9-11. He says this, Joseph Lott, a sales representative for Compact Computers, survived one of the deadliest days in modern American history because he had a penchant for art ties, neckties featuring famous masterpieces. On the morning of September 11, 2001, he had put on a green shirt before meeting colleagues at the Marriott Hotel sandwiched between the Twin Towers. Over breakfast, his co-worker, Elaine Greenberg, who had been on vacation the week before in Massachusetts, presented him with a tie she'd spotted on her trip that featured a Monet. Lot explained, I said, this is such a nice gesture. I think I'm going to put this on and wear it as I speak. She said, well, not with that shirt. And Graf goes on to explain how Lot went back to his hotel room to change shirts while Elaine went up to the 104th floor of the North Tower. Now, you can probably fill in the blanks as to what happened. Elaine tragically died on 9-11. Joseph Lot survived. 
Of course, neither one of them had any way to anticipate the events that were going to unfold that day. If they had had things planned out in their planners, if they had had their schedule written out in perfect increments, there's no way that either one of them could have anticipated what was going to take place. A very interesting graph gives a commentary on all this. He says this, In the years since the attacks, we have ushered ourselves into a hyper-efficient, hyper-connected world. Our regimented daily calendars organized in quarter-hour increments. Our precise arrival times foretold by Google Maps. Our travel routes optimized by Waze. Our to-do lists organized by Trello. Our perfectly curated lifestyles on Instagram display. In fact, so much of our wired society today seems bent on proving a level of control over our daily circumstances that none of us actually possesses. We try so hard to downplay and outright ignore the role chance clearly plays in life, moving through it oblivious to the randomness of fate, controlling everything we can in the hopes that it will help, those that help with those things we can't control. Now, Graph is right, except for one thing. The defining issue is not the role of chance. For James is going to go on to tell us it's the role of God himself. The Almighty God who providentially oversees and controls all that ever takes place. So James here poses a question in verse 14. He says, for what is your life? And we might answer that question in a number of different ways. But notice how James answers that question. It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. The word vapor here, it could refer to a mist or perhaps a smoke as it does in Acts chapter 2 and Joel 2. But we all have a vision of what a vapor might look like. If I had a coffee cup sitting on this pulpit, you might be able to see those vapors coming up out of the cup. But you're only going to see them for a split second. You see them in a moment and then they're gone. And James says that is your life. Nothing more than a vapor. You know, that reality has become more real to me the older I've gotten. Now, of course, I know some of you look at me and think I'm not very old. 37, not even 40 yet. But I became a Christian when I was 13. And I remember that at that time, it's hard to believe this, my pastor in that time was, I think, about 32 or 33 years of age. And to me, as a 13-year-old whippersnapper, that seemed old. And now I'm older than he was at that time. So it's a bit mind-boggling for me to try to process all of that. But I have noticed that the longer time goes on, the faster things seem to go. You know, in the past 12 years, I've moved four different times. Twelve years ago, I was single. And I was a mess, as my wife can probably tell you. But in that time, I've gotten married. I've had three kids. I've held four different jobs in 12 years. But life 12 years ago, as I reflect on it, if I, if I go back in my mind's eye to life 12 years ago, it seems just about as real as life does now. And I don't 
frankly know where all that time has gone. We think of what Moses told us, right? We read it this morning. Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Interesting what Wearsby said, commenting on that. He said, we count our years at each birthday, but God tells us to number our days. We should be thankful for each day that God gives us because it's all a gift from His hand. But all we have for certain is today. None of us knows what's going to happen tomorrow. It's possible that there are those that I'm looking at right now that won't be here tomorrow. I I hope that's not the case. It's possible this preacher you're looking at won't be here tomorrow. We simply don't know. We cannot presume that tomorrow will always be there because James tells us that life is fragile and life is short. But what's the cure for this type of presumption? I'd like us to consider, secondly, the antidote to planning without God. The antidote to planning without God. Notice verse 15. For for that ye ought to say, if the Lord will we shall live and do this or that. Now, in the original language, this verse begins with a word that means instead. So you've got this presumptuous type of planning. Yeah, we're going to go into that city. We're going to go there. We're going to buy. We're going to sell. We're going to make a profit. We're going to do all this. And what James says, instead of that, consider this. The instead here is that ye ought to say, if the Lord will. This is a sentiment that we really find throughout the New Testament. Of course, the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Consider Jesus' words in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke 22, verses 41 and 42. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Acts chapter 18, verse 21. This is Paul as he's leaving Ephesus. He says, he bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you if God will. And that's what James indicates here. We ought to say, if the Lord will. Now, it's worth mentioning here that if the Lord wills, this is not some kind of magic words, not some kind of formula that you need to feel constrained that every time you talk, you just automatically add those words in there. There was a a time I heard about it, a Christian college I graduated from, where a chapel speaker came and he preached a very stirring message on this passage. And probably not really intended by the speaker, but the students really uh, felt very burdened about this. And so all across campus, the students started tacking on, if the Lord will, to just about everything that they said. They'd be in the dining common about to get a Coke. You know, I'm going to get a Coke if the Lord wills. I'm going to write this letter to my girlfriend if the Lord wills. And it kind of got out of control from what I understand. 
That's not really what James is talking about. He's not talking about using these words as some kind of magic formula. Rather, this is a perspective that we have on life. That we realize that, yes, we can make our plans, we can put our calendars out, we can say, okay, we're planning this for this time, for this date, but ultimately we recognize that our lives are under the control of Almighty God. Ultimately, He's the one that is going to decide if we do this or that. So, we see this condition here, if the Lord will. Notice what He says here. In verse 15, for he ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live. That's a startling statement. We don't even know if we're going to have another moment on this earth. The very fact that our hearts are beating is under the control of Almighty God. And we live in a culture where we think that we can control all of that. You know, well, you know, if, I, if we just get the right diet... You know, if we exercise enough, you know, we can live longer. And I'm, I'm all for diet and exercise. I probably could use a lot, a heavy dose of that. My wife will say amen shortly. But the reality is, friends, that we ultimately don't have control over the time of our death. That's in the Lord's hands. Every moment that you breathe air is a gift from Almighty God. That's not your air. That's God's air. That's not your heart that's beating. That's God's heart that he put inside there. It's all a gift. We should never presume, dear friends. That's such a, a harsh reality that I, I think I've mentioned this before that really came home to me the night that I trusted in Christ. When that preacher was standing behind the pulpit and he said that if your heart is beating, that heart is beating because God is allowing it to beat. That was the first time I'd ever been confronted with that reality. And that was really the, the fear of God was put in me in a sense. And I, I recognized that, hey, everything is a gift from his hands. So we, we can't even breathe the next breath apart from the will of God. You notice what's said next, we shall do this or that. There's a recognition here that God's in control and the perspective that we ought to have as Christians is that we may have to have a plan B from our perspective. Now there's no plan B in God's perspective. It's all under his control. But from our perspective, we say, okay, if the Lord wills, and we might do this, but if God doesn't allow us to do this, we may end up doing that. You see, it's all under his control. This is the great danger, dear friends, that we would make plans thinking that all of this is going to be certain. That, you know, I can go to this place, I can do these things, I can sell these items, I can make this kind of money. And yes, we make our plans, but friends, God may have another plan. We always have to bear that in mind. That, friends, is the antidote to presumption. The antidote to planning without God. Now, the, James concludes this section 
with really a somber warning. This brings us to number three, the corruption of planning without God. The corruption of planning without God. Few, really two features of this corruption. First of all, there's evil boasting. You see it in verse 16. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. That word rejoice often translated boast in the New Testament. And that really seems to be the sense here. Interesting, that word boastings that appears here. It's used only one other time in the New Testament, and we're going to look at it. I'd encourage you to turn over to 1 John, if you would. 1 John chapter 2. We mentioned this verse 15 a moment ago. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now notice verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. That word that is translated pride is the same word translated boastings in James chapter 4. And very interestingly, both of those passages in James 4, 1 John 2, both of them are referring to worldliness. That kind of thinking, James says, this boastful attitude, this pride of life, this is a worldly attitude. We're getting well beyond just our, our choices of TV or movies or music. All of those things are things to consider when we think about worldliness. But this is an attitude about life. How do we consider life? Worldly thinking is proud thinking. It is the type of thinking that takes God off the throne and it replaces it with me and with my plans. Incidentally, you know, you think about TV and movies and you can find that, I mean, a lot of Christians, you know, are very sensitive about language in the movies, about sexual content and things of that nature. But a lot of times, one of the real dangers that Hollywood gets us to believe is that all these plans can happen without God. I think that's probably the most insidious danger of all. I mean, isn't it remarkable? You can watch these movies of these people that are in these precarious situations, these life or death situations, and it's all about their willpower to deliver themselves from death. You don't see them praying. You don't see them calling on the name of the Lord. It's as if we can do all of this by our own strength. It's all up to man. Friend, that's the greatest danger of all. And it's so insidious. Friend, we ought not have that perspective. We ought to recognize, dear friends, the fact that we are very limited in what we can do. We can't boast in our own abilities. God is the one that's on the throne. So we see evil boastings. We also see a sinful neglect. As we go back to James, chapter 4, verse 17. 
Notice verse 17. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Now if you read the commentators, you find that a number of them have, have really pulled out their hair over this verse. Because some of them think that this verse seems to have nothing to do with the preceding verses. Well, we know that can't be the case because of the way that James has structured this. You notice, what do you see at the verse at, in verse 17? What's the first word? Therefore. And what do I always say? When you see the word therefore, what do you do? Find out what it's there for. This is a word that indicates that there's a connection with what has gone before. And I would suggest to you, friends, the connection is this. When James says, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin, he's talking about planning without God. That's what these readers are doing. Now, we're going to go into this city. We're going to buy and sell. We're going to engage in business there. We're going to get this profit. But they're doing it without considering God. And the omission of God, that's the good that they should have done. And James says that that's not just poor planning, that's sin. Very serious for us to make these plans, to determine that we're going to do X, Y, or Z. And maybe it's even a New Year's resolution. It's a huge blunder. More than that, it's a sin against your Creator to say, I can do all of that, but I don't need to give any consideration to His plans. The godly thing to do, the right thing to do, is to say that all these plans that I make, they're all in His hands. And yes, I do the best I can. I'm determined. I have this goal. I'm going to achieve it, but only if the Lord will. Because he may not will that I'm going to make this move, that I'm going to get this job, that I'm going to make this money. Ultimately, our lives, our well-being, our goals, our accomplishments, they are all in his hands. And if we don't consider that, we're in sin. Now, as we wrap up, we have to ask, what's the takeaway here? How do we apply this as we think about the new year? Well, I'd like you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians, if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And I think kind of a, a helpful way to conceptualize this as we think about our planning, our thinking, Second Corinthians 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of God. Of Christ. Now, as we approach the new year, as we think about our plans, our dreams, our aspirations, our thoughts, there are two kinds of those that we can have. 
One kind, one kind of thought or plan, etc., is the type of thought that is opposed to the knowledge of God. The other type of thought is one that is captive to the obedience of Christ. So we can think thoughts that are centered around God and His plans, or we can think thoughts that omit God and His plans. Now again, as we, we think through this, this doesn't have to be the, the most hideous type of sin imaginable. It doesn't have to mean that you're thinking thoughts about getting drunk. It doesn't mean that you're thinking thoughts about doing something horrendous to somebody else. It could simply be that you're doing something that's fully acceptable but God is not at the center of it. You're the one at the center of it. So, if you want a good New Year's resolution, let me give it to you. Any thought, any plan, any dream that doesn't have God at the center, throw it out. And put God, put His plans in the center of all that you think and all that you do. Dear Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we've had to reflect on James and his critical words for us in James 4. We pray that as we approach the coming year, that we would do so with a humble recognition that you direct all things according to your will. May we submit our will to yours. More may we, even as we make plans, as we anticipate hopefully good things that are in store for us this year, may we do so with the thought that you, dear Father, are the ones that are directing us. And it will only come to pass as you determine. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Let's stand and turn to number 474, which is...